Welcome everyone. Happy Diwali, Samal Barak to everyone. It's a lovely way to start the new year, a bit of knowledge. So we thought we'll do something a little bit different this time. Um, Going to talk about uh, some uh, philosophy from some uh, a different guru. So earlier this week, I gave a talk to a corporate uh, Drew's mum's um, uh, company, uh, all English people, and uh, I told them just a little introduction, explained to them what the body, mind, intellect is. No mention of spirit, God. Some of the basic ideas, and they said it was very thought-provoking. They had never heard anything like this. But all of you have passed that stage now, so I, I have to share something deeper, something higher. I can't get away just to uh, talk about the basics. So to provoke your thoughts to say it's thought-provoking, I have to go into it a bit deeper. So Swami Tapavan Maharaj, he was a um, Swami from the south, I've explained before, who left everything and went to the Himalayas. He is the guru of Swami Chinmayananda. And, and the Swami Vatasati was uh, studying under Swami, Swami Chinmayananda. So it's, it's the lineage. And when he left at the early age of late 20s, early 30s, he went up to the Himalayas. Rishikesh, which is at the foothill of the Himalayas, was the lowest he ever went. He never went back into any parts of India lower than Rishikesh. And I, I, I sort of read his book every morning and uh, I want you to read an excerpt. Um, this is a book called Wandering in the Himalayas by Swami Tapaban. So, <laughs> This particular excerpt, he, he talks about when he wanders around in the Himalayas. And while he's wandering around, he, 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 from basically what he experiences with nature, with people, he philosophizes and gives us some insight. So this particular excerpt is when he went to Nepal. And when he went there uh, for Shivratri, um, while he was there, people used to come and see him for knowledge, for wisdom. So I'm going to read this now, and then I'll explain to you what it means. Can everyone hear me okay, yeah? Now, it's quite deep, so bear with me, but we will talk more about it afterwards. So it says, I passed two months at the capital of Nepal, in great joy. The two months seemed as short as two days. Several people acknowledged to me with gratitude how much they had gained in knowledge and peace of mind as a result of our daily discussions. Out of the thousands who inhabit the town, only a small number attended these discussions as a rule. But it is nothing to be wondered at, since most people naturally prefer gossip serious discourses on philosophy. Only a few virtuous souls with real wisdom realize that sensuous pleasures which cause bondage are ultimately the source of sorrow and cultivate a spirit of detachment in an effort to attain the divine joy. All mankind without any distinction of the learned and the ignorant lose themselves in the fleeting bodily pleasures 
and consequently suffer from a series of calamities such as births and deaths and illness. Yet paradoxical as it is, they fancy that state of bondage to be happiness. The very awareness of bondage is the result of keen discrimination. He who knows not he is bound will not try to set himself free. He who does not desire freedom cannot find any interest in the search after truth or in philosophical discussions. Philosophical discussions lead to philosophical wisdom. Knowledge of truth leads to soul force. Soul force is ever homogeneous, unexcelled, eternal. The seductive power of the sense objects is as momentary as the flashes of lightning. In the presence of soul force, power of the sense objects lose all luster and appears as a glow warm in the presence of the sun. The soul force is the great force in whose presence all earthly power, the power of the king, emperor, becomes infinitely negligible. When man attains that power, all his bonds break and he comes to enjoy a free, blissful life with a feeling of eternal contentment and finality. So long as man mistakes the body for the self and consequently entertains feelings of I and mine, he can hardly reach the portals of soul force. Most people caught in the toils of illusion waste their lives, not only without attaining soul force or self-knowledge, but even without realizing that they are in a state of bondage. Among all mankind, who has the strength to overstep the limits of the wide realm of the mighty illusion, which holds sway over everything and engulfs all men and women in the shoreless sea of desire and dances intoxicated, blowing the trumpet of her victory that signifies undisputed sovereignty. So that's an excerpt from his book, Swami Tapavan's book. Did everyone get a little bit of understanding from that? what he was trying to say. I'm going to explain it a little bit. Does, any, does, it, does everyone understand a little bit what he's trying to say? Just the theme of what he's trying to say. Any ideas? What is he trying to say? Dhanush, what's he trying to say? So what he said was that he held meetings every day or prayer meetings yeah. and only a few came because only a few have the mental capacity to find more or want more. And yeah. so the, the soul flare, what's he saying? Soul force. The soul force is the self. Yeah. As long as you understand that, you know, he realizes that the whole world is illusional and finding the self it has the greatest pleasure and the most energy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anything else? Anybody else wants to add anything to that? Was it, cl um, was it clear? Did everyone heard what I said? Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to explain a little bit. So first it's saying that he has this, not meetings, but he's there. The people find him and they come and they want knowledge from him. And he's saying very few people interested in this subject. This is expected. This is normal. Why? Because people are more interested in idle chat, gossip, meaning ordinary things, worldly things. Very few people understand that sensual pleasure, meaning pleasure gained from the five senses, causes attachment, bondage to the world. And that ultimately, they only cause pain and suffering. It's nothing to be wondered at, since most people naturally prefer gossip to philosophy, only a few people realize real wisdom, realize that sensual pleasures which cause bondage are ultimate 
actually the source of sorrow. So very few people detach themselves away from worldly pleasures. In fact, they, they, they go deeper into it. I have a bucket list. Before I die, I need to do all these things. Well, we're saying the opposite. We want to reduce it and not have a bucket list. We're saying, no matter how educated or ignorant you are, what status you have, king, emperor, queen, how much wealth you have, they're all lost in bodily sensual pleasure and they ultimately suffer. It has no differentiation to wealth and status. Suffer from a series of calamities such as births and deaths and illness. How do you suffer? By you constantly going through the experience of birth, illness, and death. The body is very fragile. It gets old. You get an illness. You die. It's a fact. But we think this is happiness. Going through these cycles. That's what he's saying. We think it's happiness. It's crazy. That's what he's saying. You're all mad. And then he says, the very awareness of the fact that you're in bondage is the result of keen discrimination. He who knows not he is bound will not try to set himself free. He who does not desire freedom cannot find any interest in the search after truth or in philosophical discussions. Why would you want to come to these classes to learn this truth? This knowledge, knowledge that helps you become free from this bondage. If you don't know you're in bondage, why would you want to know how to get out of bondage? Lipa, makes sense. If you don't know you're bound, you're a prisoner in your own house, why would you want to get out? So he's saying, philosophical discussions lead to philosophical wisdom, knowledge of truth, leads to soul force, meaning gets you to that ultimate state. Knowledge leads you to wisdom, leads you to soul force, meaning freedom from this worldly bondage, moksha, self-realization. And then he compares, what's this sensual pleasures that you are going through, that you think it's so important? He's saying, the seductive power of the sense object is as momentary as the flashes of lightning in the presence of the soul force. Power of the sense objects loses all luster and appears as a glow worm in the presence of the sun. Saying he's comparing sensual pleasure to the state. Sensual pleasure is a light, a flash of lightning, meaning so temporary compared to the state of freedom. He's saying it's like the glow coming from a glow worm compared to the sun. Where's the light from the sun compared to the light coming from a little glow worm? That's how he compares that state compared to sensual objects. There's no comparison. No worldly power can compare to this state. When you reach this state, you become free, free from all bondage, enjoy ultimate happiness. When man attains that power, all his bonds break. He comes to enjoy a free, blissful life with a feeling of eternal contentment and finality. Then it says, how do you do that? As long as man mistakes the body for the self and consequently entertains feelings of I and mine, he can hardly reach that state. As long as you have an ego, I and my, you cannot understand this state. You have to bypass that. Then he compares this illusion. 
Most people caught in the toils of illusion waste their lives. Not only without attaining soul force or self-knowledge, but even without realizing that they are in a state of bondage. They don't know. They don't realize they're in bondage. They waste their lives, not because they don't get this knowledge, but they don't know they are in bondage. They don't know the purpose of life. In the last paragraph, he's saying why it is so difficult to remove that bondage. The mighty illusion which holds sway over everything and engulfs all men and women in the shoreless sea of desire and dances intoxicated, blowing the trumpet of her victory that signifies undisputed sovereignty. Why is it so difficult to remove that bondage? The illusion is so strong. It takes a lot of strength, a lot of courage to get over our desires for worldly pleasure. Desires are too strong. This maya illusion, the world blows its trumpet to say, no one can overcome me. I'm too strong. The five senses are my slaves. That's the world saying, you can't beat me. This illusion is too strong. But you can. You just need that strength, that conviction. First of all, you have to understand that sense objects binds me to the world. I need to release myself. Only then. There's a, um, I can't remember which book, but they explained what this uh, feeling of bondage should be like how to get out of this bondage. And they said that you, the way you should look at bondage and that the desires, how they keep you into this world, you should have the conviction and the strength and the urgency. And the urgency should be the same as someone placing your head underwater and holding it there. And you're, you, you need oxygen. And the amount of effort you put to get your head out of that water so that you can breathe. That should be how much urgency there should be. That's how much importance that should be for you to break free from this bondage. Villa? That's how strong your conviction should be. So anyway, I thought I'd share this with you. I hope you find it inspiring on this day, uh, New Year. But we'll do something different. If there's any questions, um, Happy to explain if there's something you didn't understand. So I have to say, I have to read something and explain that make you think like, uh, you know, just how uh, on, on last week when the English companies, English people said, you know, this is uh, very thought provoking. So I have to say something to you that makes you feel that there's something thought provoking. Because <laughs> you're at a different standard now, different level. Is there any clarifications to what I've just read? Does everyone understand what the theme of that topic was? Yeah? Emma, did it make sense what he's trying to say? Shashi? True? Okay, any clarifications before we move on? Did you enjoy it? If I know that you enjoy it, then I can do some more next time. It's quite deep, the philosophy he gives out, and it's all from personal experience. Great, okay. Right, back to normality. So we're going to finish this uh, chapter today. So this whole book, Vedanta Treatise, educates you, explains to you in a logical way the purpose of life. It takes you step by step, chapter by chapter, to the end goal. Explains what God is and what this state of self-realization is. It first introduces this 
subject Vedanta, the science and knowledge of life. Now, I want to make thing, one thing clear. This knowledge is not based on any religion. It is the foundation of the majority of religions. But for some of you, maybe your practice of religion has brought you to this door of this knowledge. It's a stepping stone from religion to knowledge. Some of you may have not have any beliefs in any religion and you've come straight to this knowledge. But so religion is a stepping stone. This isn't any, this is nothing to do with any religions. It is a mature growth from religions and religious practices. The subject takes you from the known to the unknown. You know yourself, you know the world. So it then dissects the world and its components. Helps us understand us, the human being. What are we made up of? Spirit, vastness, thoughts, emotions, physical body, five senses. Then talks about the purpose, the goal of a human being. Then it tells you how to get to that goal. So we discussed in the last few weeks that for a human being to get to his or her goal, the main obstruction barrier is their desires, their vasanas. This is what holds them into the world. And in the last chapter, we discussed the four yogas and how if you practice these yogas, then slowly it helps you reduce your desires. Once the desires are reduced, Find yourself in a contemplative state. You're able to concentrate more easily because there's no desires agitating your mind. Oh, I need to go, go here. I need to buy this. I need to do this. Those desires are gone now. You find yourself able to concentrate. The mind isn't drawn to the world. It's your desires that stop you from concentrating. Agitations of the mind. So you practice the four yogas, you reduce most of your desires. He said, while you're reducing the bulk of your desires, you need to act in the world with a sense of renunciation, meaning act while pitching up on something higher. And if you act in this way, with this attitude, you don't add any more new desires. See, the main thing is you're reducing your desires, but at the same time, you don't want to add new desires. So if you act based on pitching up on a higher ideal, then you won't add new desires while you're doing whatever you're doing. This then takes you to a mental state which seems like you have become withdrawn from the world lost interest in the world, you come to this state. Once you reach that state, you're now ready for meditation, which is our next topic. I've just given you in a nutshell this, about this book and uh, what we've covered so far and why we're at this state of meditation. You've reduced all your desires now, no interest in the world. And you're saying now, what shall I do next? Okay, you're ready for meditation. Any clarifications? Any questions? Great. Right, so renunciation. So you've done renunciation, you've reduced your desires, and now you're ready for meditation. So renunciation heralds meditation. Paragraph one, please. The mental state of renunciation is an essential prerequisite for practicing concentration and meditation. You need to first free yourself from your mental bondage to the world. The mind is riddled with desires. The unfulfilled desires cause the mind to be agitated, disturbed. Such a mind remains enmeshed in the affairs of the world. It cannot rise to the subtler realm of contemplation and meditation. You need a calm and composed mind to do that. And the way to achieve that state is through reduction of desires. And the three yogas, karma, action, 
bhakti, devotion, and jnana knowledge have been prescribed from time immemorial to eradicate desires. Karma yoga, the path of action, is the spiritual discipline directed to the body. Bhakti yoga, the path of devotion to the mind. And jnana yoga, the path of knowledge to the intellect. Thus, must you intelligently proportion these disciplines to suit the constitution of your personality. You then gradually reduce the bulk of your desires. Your mind is freed from agitation. It becomes calm. A calm mind alone can be directed to meditation. And through meditation, you attain spiritual enlightenment. So in order to qualify to practice meditation, you need to be in the mental state of renunciation. The mind with its unfulfilled desires leading you to agitation. You cannot concentrate. So how can you meditate? In order to make the mind calm, you need to reduce your desires. We've already covered this using the three yogas. Varied proportion based on your personality. You'll do some karma, some bhakti, some knowledge. And that will be based on your personality, which you need to work out. Once the bulk of desires are reduced, the mind is calm. You're ready for meditation. And through this practice of meditation, you attain that state of spiritual enlightenment. So this is the procedure. Any clarifications on that? Okay, great. Megna. The above traditional procedure has been scientifically designed. You cannot short-circuit this procedure and plunge into meditation. The mind requires to be prepared by the practice of the yogas to free it from the bulk of desires, a practice that involves time, a procedure that may be slow but sure. But people lack the patience and perseverance. They look for immediate results. This human weakness has been widely exploited. Self-appointed spiritual leaders have been hawking physical exercises as yoga. Also, selling meditation indiscriminately to unprepared minds all over the world. The innocent masses have been led astray. Scores of pseudo-spiritual courses are marked everywhere, or marketed everywhere. Some of these courses enjoy a large following because they lend an immediate peace, solace. The ignorant do not realize that their experience is temporary, transitory, and that they fall back into their state of sorrow and misery. These courses do not help you to grow spiritually. So he's saying, need to go about it in a proper way. It's been laid down scientifically by sages who've gone through the process. And they've designed this procedure. It takes time and effort. But these great sages have been through it and they've done it. And they say, look, do it this way. It's going to be hard. But it's tried and tested. They're saying people don't have the patience to take this approach. They look for instant results. The mind don't want to put in too much energy. It's a human trait, minimum effort, greatest reward. That is the mind. And how can I do the least amount and get the maximum reward? It doesn't work. Not in spirituality. People are unaware. They don't have the patience. People are not aware of these procedures. So these spiritual leaders, they're exploiting people's weaknesses by promoting these practices such as yoga and meditation. I'm not saying it's wrong. We're not condoning this. But what we're saying is the rewards are different. They don't reach, they don't take you to self-realization. They're more like exercises to calm the mind, 
you had a busy day, it relaxes the mind if you close your eyes and you know, stop the mind from going all over the place. A few breathing exercises, it calms your mind down. They give you a temporary feeling of peace, but your mind will go back to its original state once that feeling has faded. So it's temporary. So the, the main point they're saying is that these practices does not help you to grow spiritually. Not when your mind isn't prepared. You haven't reduced your desires. Meditation cannot work to develop you spiritually. So it's been flaunted everywhere. People making money out of it. Meditation classes. There's nothing wrong with it. I mean, you know, if you're not doing that, then you're probably fulfilling some other desire. So it's probably better to meditate, go to these classes and meditate, knowing that <laughs> at least you're sitting there, not getting into trouble. <laughs> but it's, it's not uh, a spiritual development. This is the point. Yeah. So if you know the difference, then, it's, then you're aware of what you're doing. Any questions on meditation? We've got a whole chapter, by the way. The next chapter is all on meditation. Ravi. The divine self is lost in spiritual ignorance. The mass of desires fails the self. You cannot recognize yourself through this mass. Just as you cannot see your reflection in a pond filled with moss. The green mantle covers it completely. There are two ways of seeing your reflection in the pond. The simple, easy way is to plunge your fingers into the water and push the moss aside. The moss separates forthwith to give you a glimpse of the reflection in the clear water beneath. But before you can register, the sight of the reflection below, the moss reunites. It reassumes its mantle, masking the reflection. This way of recognizing yourself is futile. The popular spiritual courses adopted by the masses is akin to pushing the moss to get a glimpse of the reflection. These practices lead you nowhere. They're saying the self is lost in spiritual ignorance, meaning people don't have the knowledge, spiritual knowledge, knowledge of the truth. And your self, your Atman is covered by desires, your Vasnas. So we can't recognize it. The more desires, the less you recognize it. So the so-called spiritual practices of today does not allow you to discover the self. So they're futile exercises. How can you recognize the self, anyone? What is the procedure besides reducing your desires? What do you need, all need to do? What should you all be doing? Tamash, what should you all be doing? Anyone? Magna? Um, reflecting. Yeah. And studying. Anybody else? Sherwin, you had something? It's not looking at the, the, the body and the mind, but looking be, behind the body and the mind. How do you do that? As Meghna said, study, reflection of spiritual knowledge. That allows you to give that clarity of thought that I am not this, I am this. You can't do it without that. Using your intellect? Using your intellect, yes, absolutely. So you use your intellect to, to study. Like what we read today in the beginning, Swami Tapavan, he's saying this is bondage. Now, you have to get to the point of where you understand that this is bondage. 
right? Now we don't understand this is bondage. So through study, reflection, questioning, satsang, this is satsang, what we're doing now is giving out knowledge and we're, taught, we're, we're having like a satsang. So through that, you then slowly understand, okay, says I'm in bondage. How am I in bondage? What is this bondage? All the sensual desires are bonding me to this world. The whole theme of spiritual development is to reduce that bondage, to get out of it. So you have to understand that first. If you don't understand, how can you get out? Why would you want to get out? I'm enjoying life. What's the big deal? So, so this is what you need to do. Study and reflection on spiritual knowledge. That removes your ignorance. Right now, the ignorance is this world is full of joy and happiness. And I'm happy. That's ignorance. Opposite of that is I need to get out of this world. Desires are keeping me hanging in there. This life, I'm going to try and get out. I'm going to reach, try and reach that state in this life. At least then in the next few lives, you may make it. Because you only take this knowledge away to the next life. Nothing else goes with you. So if you make an effort, even to discriminate, to understand that I'm in bondage, that's a big deal. Big deal. Real happiness is not in the world, but within you. You gain this happiness by uncovering the self within. As we said last week, the desire is reduced in the world and your thoughts then gets planted in the knowledge of the truth, self-knowledge. You stop chasing things as you understand more. You stop worrying about things. You're always content, happy. Damish. The, the problem is that we can study as much as you want. Mm -hmm things into practice study is just knowledge mm -hmm. and no good you have to you have to turn it into practice you have to turn it into intelligence no you don't turn it into intelligence you turn it into wisdom wisdom sorry so how do you turn it into wisdom anyone how do you turn it into wisdom by being compassionate and humble by compassion and humble, that won't convert it to wisdom. That is a practice. True. I was just going to say, if you practice, what you uh, or test or trial, you can only you can only practice if it's wisdom. You can only practice part of your life if it's wisdom. By reflection. By contemplation. By understanding. Keep reading the same paragraph 10 times until you understand it. Then you start living it. If you don't understand page one, you can't go to page two. When you understand page one completely, it might take you three months to understand page one, but now it's wisdom. Part of you, it's ingrained in you. Then you move to the next then you're converting it into wisdom. You start living it, Dharmesh, as you said. It's knowledge, I'm not living it. That means that you're not reflecting properly. You're not absorbing it. And it takes time. It's not gonna happen overnight. You've gotta put in the effort, it takes time. No one said it was easy. You see, the Maya is saying, I blow the trumpet. I won. We don't want it to win. We want to get it. We want it to lose. We want it to be stronger. Ravi, is that okay, Damesh? Yeah. The effective way of seeing your reflection is by removing the moss gradually. The moss is cleared little by little. It becomes thinner and thinner. 
Ironically, you gain no glimpse of the reflection yet. But with sustained effort, the moss is rendered so thin that it separates for good. You see your reflection in the clear water below. Similarly, you need to clear the mass of desires in the lake of your mind. This is achieved through study and reflection on spiritual literature. As you gain more knowledge, the mantle of ignorance becomes thinner. The mass of desires reduces. Thus, by your determined, sustained effort, the veil of ignorance splits to let you realize the divine self within. It's last paragraph is giving you an example. You're trying to look at your reflection in a in a in a pond, and it's the pond is covered in mosses. So he's saying if you just clear the moss a little bit, you can just get a glimpse, but before you know it, the moss goes back to veil the top. So the moss is they're comparing it to your desires. So it's clear the moss gradually, make it thinner and thinner. That's how you clear your desires, gradually and slowly put in the effort. After putting in effort to clear the moss, it gets so thin, it separates by itself. You can see your reflection in the pond. You can see it all the time because the moss is gone completely. So when you're clearing the moss, that's equivalent to study and reflection. Study and reflection clears the moss. What is the moss? Desires in, in, within us. And it gets thinner and thinner. Your desires get reduced lower, less and less. And once you've reduced most of your desires, you're able to identify with the self within. You can reach that self within. Become one with the self. Live life as a witness, a sakshi. That's it. That's all, that's what we have to do. That's all we have to do. Full order, isn't it? To get to that state. But we can all do it, you know? We've taken the first step. First step is gaining knowledge. You're all here, gaining knowledge. This is the first step. How quickly it happens depends on the amount of desires you have, the amount of effort you put in into your study and reflection. That will determine how quickly you get to that state. But you know, don't worry about that state. Just performing this study and reflection and acting will make your life in the world so much peaceful and happier happy that you'll forget about that state. You'll say, you know what, I'm so happy. Forget about that. Next lifetime, I'm just going to enjoy my life. <laughs> my mind's at peace. What more do I need? So, any questions? That's all I was going to cover. I'm not going to start the new chapter. The techniques of meditation. We're going to in a bit detail. I'm going to, I'm going to skim over it, I think. This principle of meditation. Then we look at the symbol Om. Now that is really interesting. What does this symbol Om represent? What does it mean? So if there's any general questions or clarifications, we can discuss. We have 15, 20 minutes. We can take that up. Or when there's any clarification from any other topics. Can you give examples of how you can um, release this bondage that you're talking about? Like how oh, wow. do you practical ways? Okay. So first of all, what is this bondage? Rest is us. What is this bondage? Acting our own body and mind. Huh? What is uh, this? Are we trapped in our own body and mind? Beg your pardon, what was the first bit, Shilaman? Trapped in our own bodies and mind. Yeah. So what is this bondage? Anybody else? Shilabin said the body-mind. Yes, partly she's right. What is this? I bondage? miss 
I missed the, the thing because I couldn't log on, but... Okay, no worries. You can listen to it on the podcast, the beginning. Okay, thank you. Well, what is this bondage? Is it, is it attachment to material things? Yeah, that's part of it, attachment to material things. Absolutely, that's one part of it, Damesh. The understanding that we're in an illusional world is the main focus. If you don't believe that you're in an illusional world and you don't believe what we're seeing is illusion, then you're bonded. And if you don't break that illusion, you're going to never go past that stage. But that's such a high state. None of us believe that all the time. If we did, then we'd have reached there. Just no one's asking for practicality. So what is this bondage, first of all? We are all bonded to this world. What is this bondage? Things like um, Maya, attachment to people, Maya. Absolutely. Attachments to people is bonding you to the world. Attachment to your property, attachment to your bank balance, attachment to everything that is yours, minds. Attachment to your body, mind, intellect. That's higher up bondage. Attachment to... Everything you do, this is bondage. The bondage that you think the world is giving you happiness is causing you to stay bonded. So this is the bondage. That's the ego. Sittal is saying the bondage that you, the feeling you think that the world can't survive without you. You're an important person. That is bondage. All so much, anything that holds you into the world is bondage, which is everything. All our thoughts go towards the world, bondage. The minute your thoughts go to the higher, you're reducing that bondage. One thought in the day, who is this self? Who is God? Who is Brahman? You're now not thinking of the world. You're thinking away from the world, that is not bondage. That's the opposite of bondage. Any thoughts that go to the world is bondage. Any thoughts that are not directed to the world is not bondage. So all our thoughts go to the world. So we're 100% bonded. So just somebody said, how, how would you reduce that bondage? It's from the understanding and conviction that this life is for me to reach a higher state. The world does not give me peace and happiness. I'm in it. I have to live in it. That's fine. You do your normal routine. You smile, you laugh. You do whatever you need to do. But deep inside, you know, there is a higher cause for your birth. There is a higher cause for this human being that you are and keeping that in your mind and going towards it, you're reducing your bondage. And that all, that all comes from study and reflection. This is unreal, this is real. My husband isn't real, the self is real. Bondage. Yes. Doesn't mean you say, I'm going, I'm leaving. Doesn't mean that. It's that thought inside, knowing I have a duty, but this, none of this is real. But that comes from maturity, from the study and reflection. And once you understand that, then you'll practice it automatically. You reduce your desire. When you when, when say reduce your desire, when something comes up, you'll say, you know what? I don't need it. That's not going to help me. That's not going to help me to get to my goal. The, the happiness by me doing this is, is the same as a strike of lightning or the light of a glowworm compared to the sun. That's what he said, isn't it? You may still do it. You may still go through the experience but with that understanding.
Is that okay, Jashnavin? Practically, I'm afraid that's all I can say. <laughs> it's just having that understanding, that belief, conviction. And only you can develop that. Doesn't matter how many classes you come to, how much books I read and explain to you, it has to come from you within. Just now, that was a good question. And does anybody have any other clarifications or questions? It's auspicious day. Whatever we learn today, we want to practice for the next tour, next year. Yeah. Sittle wants to say something. Got a question or? Okay. Um, so is there an aspect of surrender within this bondage that you're talking about? In the sense, surrendering to something higher that we don't necessarily understand or haven't huh? But it's the surrender to a cause and effect, uh, surrender to a higher being that, so for example, uh, you're attached to your children. Yeah, that's a bondage. And you, as a parent, would want your child to be happy all the time. Mm -hmm. And when they're not happy or something happens that is causing them unhappiness, you become affected. So that is the bondage that I have got from being attached to my child and wanting that control of wanting happiness for them all the time. But would there be a part of surrender to think actually my duty as a parent is to be there for my child? But I have no control over what they are going to experience and surrendering to that. I don't. So, first of all, surrender, she's talking about surrender. Yeah. And bondage to child, which we all have, by the way. So, first of all, how would you deal with that? Any ideas? How would you deal with that? Bondage to the child, wanting the child always to be happy. We all have children here, so yeah, Damesh. In life, you can't be happy all the time, but you can react to that world by knowing that whatever you do, you do it for the self. Mm -hmm. If you put that as your main aim, looking for the self or doing actions to bring to the self and reducing the small, the small self, the, you know the selfishness in life. The problem is, our our family, but our family is illusional as well. When it comes to the self. Okay, you're right from an absolute point of view. But now I've said this is an illusion. Now people can't switch off here and then say, "Okay, it's an illusion. That's it. I'm finished. I'm done." You can't, it's not practical. She is bonded to her child, wants to be happy. It affects her. She knows all this intellectually. But as you said, she can't practice it. Her feelings can't control her feelings. It's like religion, I would say. You either believe in what you read and you have to act on what you believe or you pretend you only do religion 10% of the time yeah. hmm. and 90% of the time you think, you know, it's not real. Okay. You have to step over that line and go, look, this is real and it's going to be real for me 100%. Mm -hmm. Only then do you receive moxa mm -hmm. and you can see the real self. But what does she do now, right now? That she knows, but that's a long way ahead for her. You're affected. What happens to your daughters? You know you have to reach that state of moksha, but how do you deal with that right now, that desire, that bondage to the child? You can't just let it go. You 
can't let it go. Yeah, Ravi. You, um, when you say bondage, as in, say, to your child and that, but if you're studying and your jnana is increasing, you, you could, you're, you're acting with as part of your obligation as a parent. And if you're not allowing your emotions to get in the way, you could clarify, I mean, you could basically support them, nurture them with your increased knowledge as such. So you're not basically attached to them, but you're fulfilling your obligation as a parent. Yeah, absolutely. So there's two parts to this. First of all, she mentioned surrender as well. So first of all, you have to understand that you realize there's a higher being playing a role in all our lives. This higher being we can call God, self, Brahman, whatever you want to call it. There is this presence, the spirit in us. So we need to surrender to that. That, that spirit knows best. So that's one part. Secondly, knowing that my child or my children, they're all born with their own vasanas. They're all born with their own cause and effect. I can't change that. What they've done in their past lives, how can you change that? They have to go through this process. But you're there for them with that understanding. Whatever happens, I'm there for them. But I can't control what they feel. I can't control the pain and suffering they may have to go through or the happiness that they may gain. I can't control that. It's not in my hands. I surrender to that higher being that they have a, they understand, they go through a decent life and all you can do is give them knowledge. You're learning this. You can apply it, give it to them. Have you... Have you, have you thought of it this way before they make a decision? Have you thought of doing it this way? You don't impart the knowledge. You know what? This is what you need to do. You just say, have you thought of it this way? And you get by. Can I say something? Uh, just one moment. Have you tried this way? You can put a little bit of a drop of your knowledge to them without saying, without actually preaching to them. But then understanding that you can't override their cause and effect. They have to experience what they've put the cause in for. So it's that understanding. Is that okay? Yeah. They have to experience, go through the experiences of life, whatever that they're meant to. But you can help them. And they fall over, you pick them up, don't we, when they're a child? Same thing. Now they're married, they have two kids, they fall over. You have to help them up gently as a parent. No difference. Yeah, Jyoti. Um, What you just said right now, uh, I just would like to tell the group that um, I've learned that in, six, in the past six months is absolutely true. What I was as a parent six months, eight months ago now actually, and what I am now are two different things. What you just described, is exactly how I feel right now. Um, it doesn't mean I don't care anymore or I've lost the will to care for my children, but I've learned over the eight months. Um, I'm not saying a little bit about detachment, but uh, the trauma, and I think someone asked the question, how do you do it? How do you apply? I'm not saying that everyone should have to go through a bad experience or a trauma and in my experience, so I can only give it to you from how I feel. Yes, I had to go through uh, a trauma, like what happened with my dad, for me to uh, A, detach a little bit, B, um, just over the past eight months, realize that yes, I am there as a parent for my children. I will uh, cook and clean and iron their uniform. But there are certain things which you just said now um, is true. They have to make their own experiences in life. Um, it's maybe maybe because I have uh, myself uh, still grieving and therefore I've detached myself a little away from caring about the little things. Um, and maybe, uh, you know, it's made me think that, you know what, you do need to have your own journey in life. You do. I will be here to support you. It's just that prime example, what you said, that you, you're there to catch them but they do need to make their own journey. They need to make their own mistakes. Even we can't live 
their lives through us. And the past eight months have shown me that greatly, whether it's because I uh, have read a lot more, listened to this a bit more on Wednesdays and Sundays, other avenues as well. It's not just this. Um, you know, there's loads of things that I've had to reach out to over the past eight months to actually what you just said is exactly true about our children and detachment. Thank you, Jyoti, for sharing your experience to the group. Any other? Yeah, I just like to make a thing that while listening to Jyoti, Joshnabe and, and uh, even Shita, today I've got actual goosebumps just listening. Uh, and also with my experience is um, whatever happens to us and how to detach is not get emotionally involved, try and separate the emotions from what situation has happened. You be there for everybody, you guide everybody for what best you can perform. But once we separate our emotions and let, don't, be, don't become their emotion because they have a different emotion than what we have. So if we separate those things, it's, it's not an easy thing. You have mm -hmm. to learn from how we're going through. And I think it's like, you know, drop by drop as you get to know these things and you, you separate yourself. And mm -hmm. we set them free for what they need to do and we set ourselves free. And another big thing is forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Once we, we realize that and, you know, we forgive and um, detach ourselves from all these things. Yes, we do start our, our journey to begin. We don't know where it begins from, but- It's already begun. Yes, it's, it's happening. And that's, that's, that's a good feeling that, yes, so that's it what, is. So that's what Sheila's been saying, cluttering that moss so you can see the self, all that clutter in your head, those cobwebs of attachments, bondage to people, to beings, you know, that is the bondage. So when you get emotional, it doesn't help. You have to look at it from an intellectual. That's why developing the intellect gives you that clarity, that discrimination. This person needs help. If I start crying with her, how's that gonna help her? Yeah, it doesn't. You're no yeah. different from her then, or that person. So you have to apply it from your intellectual, okay. Give them a little bit of knowledge. Be the strength. Everyone's journey is their own, including your yeah. children. But you have a duty to them, of course. But you can't control what happens. Any other clarifications? It's good. Any questions? Good start. Good start of the year. <laughs> well, <laughs> what's a, no other better way than getting knowledge of the self, your purpose in life? What can be higher than that? And the fact that you recognize that, you're reducing your bondage. Otherwise, what would you be doing? What's upping everyone? Salmubarak, Salmubarak. <laughs> Which you can still do, by the way, but I'm just saying, yeah, at least you're, it, 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 it'll condition the rest of your day, your week, your month with a bit of higher knowledge. Gives you a direction in life. And this is what it's all about. We don't have a direction, but this will give us a direction, which way to go. Once you know that direction, then you'll get there one day. Eventually. Any other last minute questions, clarifications from anyone? Yeah, Damish. Recognize the self in everyone is what I would Recognize say. Recognize the self in everyone, yeah. Uh, Some about everyone's self is what I would say. <laughs> the rest of it is delusional. You know that everyone's got the God particle. If you recognize that and you see that and you look for that, you see the best in everyone. Absolutely. That's it. This is all part of development. See the self in everything. Where's the problem? I love everyone. I love everything in life. You've reached a high state. Dharmesh, I'm seeing the best in you right now. <laughs> I'm seeing the best in all of you. 
<laughs> the fact that you're even here on this glorious day, being part of this class, you know, hats off to you all. Well, that's it. Any other questions, clarifications before we sign off on this auspicious day? Great. I'm about to everybody. I'm about I'm to have a lovely day. It's raining when I started class, and now the sun is shining, reflecting <laughs> off my head. <laughs> okay. Hello. Have a good day, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.